Welcome to Oxpods, a podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. We live in a time of increased political polarization, and nowhere is this more obvious than in the USA. How do we explain this polarization, and how should we judge the state of American democracy today? I'm Katrina Zagarova, a history student at the Queen's College, and I'll be talking to Dr. Bruce Shulman, the Harmsworth Visiting Professor of American History, whose research focuses on 20th century US history, particularly on the relationship between politics and broader cultural change. First of all, welcome to Oxpods. And just to begin, um, if you could give us a little bit um, of background on sort of where your specialism lies um, and just your general sort of background as a historian. Well, first and foremost, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, All my work has been in 20th century US history and specifically trying to explore the relationship between politics and policy and popular culture and broader social change. I think that people get involved into historical research for two very different Mm -hmm. kinds of reasons, whether they are really impressed by the otherness of the past, how in some ways the past, even the recent past, can be like a foreign country with Mm -hmm. people having different mindsets, expectations, experiences, uh, almost like exploring a different part of the earth. Um, And then there are those of us who are motivated by the presence of the past, the very real influence of past decisions in shaping the world that we live in today and the options that we find ourselves with. And so I think if, like me, you end up doing the recent history of the country where you grew up, that it's that sort of social critical approach that that underlies sort of the specialties that I have developed, that really trying to understand how the contemporary United States ended up where we are, uh, and then maybe from that to speculate on where we might be going. That sounds really interesting. So um, speaking of where America finds itself today, um, in your book about the 70s, you talk about how you consider the 70s to um, sort of have transformed American economic and cultural life in a similar way to the revolutions of sort of the 20s and the 60s. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, sort of the rise of conservatism in the 70s um, and the sort of the factors that um, were responsible for that and how that is kind of affecting the political landscape today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I do see the 1970s as a moment of kind of radical critical disjuncture in American history, and in fact, in many ways across the entire developed world uh, in the 1970s, that it was kind of a moment of economic crisis across the world, of political crisis, but also a time of great social upheaval and cultural experimentation. One of the, you know, important developments of that era in the United States was the rise of the conservative movement, a movement that had been gestating and developing and organizing for a long time, really since the end of the Second World War, but in the United States had always been on the periphery, kind of you know, wandering in the wilderness, not really in power, not really having much influence, not really shaping ideas or public policy. 
And in the 1970s, it really begins to organize effectively. And by the end of the decade of the 1970s, with the election of Ronald Reagan as president in 1980, in significant ways comes into power, really for the first time in American history. I mean, there had certainly been conservatives in American history beforehand, but not committed ideological movement conservatives. So that's a really significant turning point. And of course, um, it is simultaneous with the rise of conservative movements and parties across the world. So Mrs. Thatcher's election here in the United Kingdom, um, but also um, the election of a conservative government in Canada, but also um, you know, even in places like Sweden, the home of the social democratic welfare state par excellence, conservatives come into power for the, in the 1970s. So what do you think were the sort of key factors that were driving that in the 70s? That's a, that's a very good question. And you can kind of see it as a perfect storm mm. that... I think you have to understand both deeper and immediate proximate causes. So the deeper really comes from the long-term development of the conservative movement. So the conservative movement had to be prepared for when an opportunity came for it to move toward power. And what that meant in the case of the United States was it had to cease to be this extremist fringe and make itself more respectable. It had to develop an organizational network, which it did, the so-called New Right Network. It had to develop effective sources of funding, which it did from largely business interests as well as conservative foundations. It had to develop kind of grassroots support and new sources of grassroots support and the mobilization of previously kind of politically disengaged conservative evangelical Christians was important to that. And of course it needed popular leadership that could communicate in an appealing way its message and goals and it found that in people like Ronald Reagan. So all of those things were kind of necessary prerequisites. But then what really um, kind of provided the opportunity were the crises of the 1970s. First and foremost, the economic crisis of the 1970s, this seemingly, at least in the imagination of most economists, impossible combination of inflation, of high inflation, rapidly increasing prices, with economic stagnation. And so for a generation of people who had grown up with the post-war boom, who had experienced rising expectations and unprecedented prosperity to suddenly be, mm. to meet those diminished expectations was very hard. Uh, but beyond that, also a period of social and cultural upheaval. So feminism and gay rights, um, civil rights, so long settled beliefs and practices around family, around gender, around the workplace, 
around schools and universities were now all being upset. And so for people who were not happy about those changes and not happy about the new economic uncertainty, then that provided fertile ground for conservatives because the kind of liberals who had been in power for two generations were going to be the ones blamed for all of that. So in regards to sort of this cultural clash, um, to what extent do you sort of see parallels between what's sort of going on now or or let's say over the last decade or so, um, if we're thinking about Trump's election, the insurrection, all of that, to what extent do you see parallels between these developments and what happened in the sort of 60s and 70s in that sort of clash between counterculture and the rise of conservatism? You know, that's a great question and it brings up a real problem that those of us who have been looking at conservative politics and movements, and especially in the American case, have had to reckon with in the last, you know, several years, is that Trump has kind of upended the story of the rise and development Mm -hmm. of American conservatism. Because until Trump's rise, it was kind of fair to say that all of the historians of conservatism, and there are many and they disagree about which of these different factors really explains the rise of conservatism. Who were the, you know, who were the people that led to it? Were they suburban housewives in the Sun Belt? Were they business leaders? Were they religious figures? Um, were they, um, you know, white Southerners upset by the civil rights revolution? Um, were they anti-feminists upset by the women's liberation movement? Even though that, that, that we uh, historians have disagreed about the relative importance of these different factors, we were all kind of explaining the same thing, which was, how does Reagan get into power and how does the so-called Reagan revolution take place in the United States? And even through the early 2000s, we were still explaining the same thing because all subsequent American conservatives claimed and competed for the mantle of being Ronald Reagan's heir and successor. And right up through 2016, in every Republican presidential contest, they would always make the pilgrimage to the Reagan library and everyone would be fighting like, who is the real heir to Reagan. So we were really trying to explain how do we get to Reagan, Reagan's revolution. That's what modern American conservatism is about. And so then looking at the roots of that and the forces that develop that. Trump upends all of that. Trump is not an heir or successor to Ronald Reagan. Not temperamentally, not ideologically, not in terms of his base of support. Certainly, if we kind of think about issues like trade or immigration, you know, just wholly different. And so if the story of American conservatism culminates in Reagan, well, that raises one set of questions. If it culminates in Trump, though, it raises another set of questions. And we have to look for different, you know, different origins, different developments. So I think... That has made us look more and more at two new things. And one really gets to your questions. First is it's made us look at the radical right. 
So not just conservatives who were put off by liberal cultural change and especially opposed to liberal interventions in the market economy and championed the free market as did conservatives around the world, um, but a radical right that rejected the main features of modern America that imagined a nostalgic past mm. that was explicit in its racial and religious nationalism that hadn't imagined the United States as both a white man as as a white man's country literally and did not believe in the emancipation of women or the enfranchisement of non-white peoples and so that's caused us to kind of look for different roots of of the right in the United States but it's also I think put kind of a premium on looking back, not at the economic conflicts and traumas of the 1970s, but at the cultural conflicts, at the counterculture and the resistance to the counterculture. And now we can see that so much of at least the Trumpian conservative movement is really about hostility to the cultural agenda and assumptions of liberals. And it's as much about trying to stick it to the liberals and upset mm -hmm. liberals and challenge what they would call, quote, political correctness as, as it is anything else. Mm -hmm. Certainly it's not a coherent economic program or a coherent set of ideas about the relationship between government and markets. Mm -hmm in the way that we thought of Reaganite conservatism. Mm. So would you possibly see the sort of current political landscape as being even more centered around sort of these cultural conflicts than even possibly in the 60s and the 70s? Because this sort of um, discussion about wokeness, about political correctness has become so, so central to the political debate. Yes, I mean, I think if we're trying to, to draw dividing lines, what are the axes of political conflict, it's very hard to draw clear lines on those sort of classic questions of political economy now, on things like regulation of business or trade or taxes, um, pensions. I mean, we kind of, Trump has sort of upset those very conventional ideological lines and so that now, so much of political conflict in the United States is really about those kinds of cultural questions. So yeah, no, I would, I would totally agree with your characterization. And interestingly, you referred earlier to um, the importance of religion. Um, and I think that this is probably an aspect where the US, in a way, sort of um, baffles a lot of Europeans, because... Um, Christianity doesn't really have the same uh, sort of central status, for instance, in the UK in political discourse as it does in America. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about sort of the centrality of Christianity to the rise of conservatism and also why in America Christian rhetoric still m remains so central to political debate. Yeah, it is, I think, a significant difference mm. between the United States and almost all other mm. Western industrial nations. Um, and 
in some ways maybe it makes the United States resembles you know some parts of the less developed world in its politics with the the primacy of religion. I think we do have to point out though, so kind of before addressing your question, that that's another example of the kind of cultural polarization that you were asking about earlier in that the fastest rising group in terms of religion in the United States are people with no church or non-religious people. And what we have seen in the last 25 years is this remarkable partisan polarization along religious lines. And that is people with a strong Christian affiliation are becoming overwhelmingly Republican. And people that have no religious affiliation are almost entirely Democrats. So that one important political divide is in fact Mm. a religious divide. And that may say something about the intensity of these political differences and the you know, difficulty of finding kind of points of compromise or common ground. If you kind of think of the struggle as not a partisan or an ideological struggle, but as one uh, between sort of religious worldviews, then that becomes something that's kind of harder, mm. harder to mediate. Um, there's a significant portion of the American public for whom their religious commitments are primary. They not only kind of structure their view of the world and their political views, but also their social and cultural life, which is built around church and Bible study, that they're very likely to, you know, socialize with and even work with mainly people with shared religious views. There are parts of the United States, and these are not just, you know, distant, remote, rural outposts. There are lots of parts of the United States where it's kind of unusual and socially uncomfortable to not have a church. Mm. And maybe not expected to have a particular church in the way that one might have 50 or 100 years ago. But to live in parts of the country and not have a church, you know, is makes you stand out in some way. So yes, um, you know, religion has a particular resonance in American life, and it's especially powerful in some parts of the United States. Mm. And I think that's reflected in, for example, how central certain moral issues are, which again, aren't really that up for debate in European countries. So specifically the issue of abortion, Mm. um, which is incredibly central to a lot of political conflicts going on right now. Um, And with the recent sort of overturning of Roe versus Wade, um, the landmark decision um, from the 70s that legalized abortion Mm. at a sort of constitutional level, um, so I was wondering why you think that is. Is it is it that conservatives are actually concerned with, for instance, the issue of abortion? Or is it that the issue kind of allows them to have a platform on which to um, talk about the conservative agenda, if that makes sense? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a little bit of both mm-hmm. there. I mean, it would be wrong to dismiss the intensity of people's personal and religious beliefs about abortion on both sides that are quite genuine. I think there's also been significant change 
you know, in the 50 years since mm -hmm. Roe was initially handed down. And I think we've seen that in the most recent election results since the overturning of Roe last mm -hmm. summer. Um, abortion turned out to be really unusually significant in American politics when Roe came down in ways that I think nobody expected. First, it was important in creating a broad religious right and in mobilizing it politically. And by a broad religious right, I mean not only conservative white evangelical Protestants, the groups we normally think of when we use the term the religious right, but also uh, conservative Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. And even though, you know, most Americans are Protestants, um, Roman Catholics are the single largest denomination because, of mm -hmm. course, there's so many different rival Protestant denominations. And anti-Catholicism had been a really powerful part of American life and especially of Protestant life. And that shared hostility to abortion and shared commitment to trying to prevent and limit and make abortion illegal kind of brought together Catholics and Protestants in a way that they had previously never cooperated. And that had tremendous impact on on shaping the conservative movement and on American politics. What I think also, I mean, you know, abortion became central to the debate over women's liberation and women's rights and feminism in a way that I think nobody expected. Um, one way of thinking about that is that when Congress passed the Equal Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and sent it to the states for ratification. It seemed like a shoe-in. It was moving quickly through the states and so on. It didn't seem all that controversial. Uh, then came Roe, and even though the ERA had nothing to do with abortion, both were associated with the women's liberation movement, both were associated with feminism, and the association with the much more controversial and divisive abortion issue, I think, helped develop an anti-feminist opposition and also um, kind of helped derail the ERA. And protection of abortion rights has been the, the number one thing on the feminist agenda ever since, which um, I don't think people in, in the 1960s would have expected that to be the case. But then I think, um, you know, as important and resonant as abortion is, what the most recent developments have shown us is that there seems to have been a shift in attitudes. I mean, I think election results in places like Kansas, uh, you know, uh, in which very conservative states have nonetheless opposed efforts to restrict abortion in the wake of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe, maybe show us that that a generalized acceptance of abortion is pretty widespread in abortion rights is pretty widespread in in the United States now even in, in ways that we didn't necessarily expect and um, in regards to sort of um, the US being embroiled in this culture war and these divisions in society I think I'm wondering to what extent 
that is the reality and to what extent that is the narrative that is sort of being presented in the media, which is clearly reflective of a, of a certain reality. But I'm wondering on a sort of more personal level, to what extent do you think that sort of average Americans believe that they are living in a sort of moment um, in which there's a very, they're living in a very device, divided society? Mm-hmm. So I think there's sort of three different questions. There are three different possibilities. Mm-hmm. So the first is... Um, is the culture war real or not, or has it been kind of exaggerated or manipulated, or it's the stuff of media narrative? But if you look more closely, that's exaggerated. It's not real. The other question is, um, how does it affect people's self-perceptions? Do people feel like they are living in, experiencing, fighting in the victims of a culture war or not? Um, and so the answer to those questions is it's really hard to know. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of disagreement about it. And the evidence, at least the evidence that I've seen, seems to be mixed. Mm. So, um, you know, sociologists and other social scientists have been trying to sort of test whether or not the rhetoric about culture war accurately describes how people think, feel, and live in the contemporary United States and, or is it an exaggeration? Is it kind of part of this media narrative? Is it being deployed by people for political purposes but doesn't really match everyday experience? And social scientists have been trying to analyze this since kind of the, the culture war of the 1990s when that mm-hmm. term really entered, you know, into the, you know, American public debate. And in the earlier period, in the 1990s and early 2000s, what they found was, no, it's really exaggerated. Mm-hmm. That you could see this culture war among highly motivated elites, but mm-hmm. for ordinary Americans, you know, it didn't really structure mm-hmm. the way they saw themselves, their neighbors, the, the country that they lived in. And in fact, there was still a lot of widely shared views, kind of a widely shared culture. The sociologist Alan Wolf around 2000 published this book, which kind of put forward a lot of this research. And its title was telling One Nation After All. We're supposedly in a culture war, but we're really still one nation after all. Now, in the last 10 or 15 years, those social social scientific studies have shown much more polarization. So the Pew Center for Social Research in particular has shown, you know, that people are express really negative attitudes about those that don't share their political and social views, that they have fewer friends across both political lines, but also racial and ethnic and cultural and income lines, that they don't want their, you know, sons or daughters to, you know, marry somebody who has the other party's political views. So it seems that the evidence of culture war or cultural polarization in the society is greater now than it was 20 years ago. 
Is it still exaggerated in media accounts? Yes, but the trend does seem to be that maybe it's less exaggerated than it was before, which then I think gets to the, the third and final part of your formulation about how do Americans kind of see themselves. And here I have no evidence, this is just my gut reading of, of it, is that more and more people do see themselves on the side of a culture war that do see the people on the other side not as kind of fellow citizens or people with a basic shared culture and set of ideas and mores but as alien certainly there's been much more talk about breaking up the union and about alternatives to one united states since Trump's election than I'd ever seen or heard in my lifetime. Mm. And I'd like to end um, with a sort of more holistic question, kind of looking at sort of American history, basically from the beginning in a way, um, thinking about sort of um, assimilation and diversity. So I think it's fair to say that for the first maybe um, 200 years of American history or so, um, there was this sort of expectation of assimilation and a lot of sort of the conflicts that we saw, for example, um, in the 1920s after this massive boom of um, immigration from Eastern Europe, Jewish immigration from South Europe, Italian immigration and so on. Um, and there was this, there, there was a lot of racial tension as a result of that. Um, and there's a sort of idea in American historiography that there was always an aspiration on the behalf of these minorities to want to become white, to want to become a wasp. So, for example, um, I think it's Noah Ignatev who um, wrote the book about how the Irish became white, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and I was wondering, sort of in the context of, let's say, post-1960s, post-1970s, to what extent do you think that sort of that whole... Um, that whole idea of assimilation has kind of been thrown in the bin um, and instead um, sort of diversity has kind of become what is what is prized um, in American society and could that possibly be part of the reason why we have these moral combustions and these culture wars arising that people no longer want to assimilate in the way that they previously had to so that's a great question mm. It's another question that if you had asked me this question seven or eight years ago, mm -hmm. I would have given you a very solid, definitive answer. And that would have been that, yes, that, you know, the idea of assimilation is in the rubbish bin, mm -hmm. that the 1960s and 70s totally discredited it, that people began to ask the question, who is being assimilated into what? Mm -hmm. That the metaphor of the great American melting pot ceased to be something to be celebrated and was something to be criticized and even opposed. And that instead, you know, Americans chose different metaphors salad bowl, tapestry, gorgeous mosaic, um, and that diversity rather than assimilation became the, the dominant way of thinking about, you know, variation and 
experience in the United States and certainly became sort of the, the thing that people celebrated the United States for. Uh, what I think the last seven or eight years has shown is that the number of people, the intensity of their feeling and their willingness to take desperate, even extreme measures in advance of their views who resist that idea of a diverse America, who still have a racial and religious nationalist idea of Americanism, who either insist on an assimilation or in the more extreme cases want to eliminate those that they think can't assimilate, that, you know, they're not just a few crazies hiding under some rocks, but uh, a significant... I mean, not a majority or anything like that, but a significant part of the American public and that the triumph of the idea of diversity and the discrediting of a kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant view of what America and Americanism is, that that work is not as complete as I might have thought it was, you know, in the mid two thousand mid two thousand tens or something like that. Mm. So do you still think that WASP, so white Anglo Saxon Protestants, this sort of acronym that's um often brought brought up when we're talking about sort of um elitism in American politics and that kind of thing, do you think that WASPs still maintain a certain degree of power? Or or is that term no longer relevant in twenty twenty two? Well that's a great question. It it's and it, it kind of raises a, a paradox. Mm. And that is that used, as we normally use WASP, to not only, you know, designate people who are white from Anglo-Saxon background, Northern, Western European backgrounds, uh, you know, and Protestants, but kind of part of the, the old Yankee elite mm. that was so regnant in the 19th century and early 20th century. But yeah, I mean, in many ways, it still holds on to power that, you know, not only wasps themselves, but especially the institutions that they created and that reflect mm. their legacy, whether it's the Ivy League universities, whether it's um, the main philanthropic organizations, um, uh, you know, whether it's the, the, a variety of different social clubs, that yes, they're still important. But what's interesting is that they are mostly championing the, mm. the idea of diversity. Mm. They are more on the, uh, uh, on the secular, modern, uh, cosmopolitan side. And the people that are you know, making the case for the essential waspiness, the essential whiteness and Christianness and maleness of America and campaigning against what they see as the changes of the 60s and 70s and after are not really associated with the elite or the elite institutions. Mm -hmm. So they may be, you know, white Protestants, but they're not wasps in that kind of sense of the association with the 
you know, the 19th century mm. aristocracy, if mm. you, informal aristocracy, if you will. Perfect. So that brings us to the end of our Oxpods interview. Thank you so much for making the time and I hope everyone enjoyed listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk. Thank you.